Well, 2 Kings chapter 10, it's a long chapter and 36 verses, and there's a lot here, and I'll give you a heads up, uh, it's a little gory. Um, and I want to encourage you, though, that my, my outline tonight will be rather succinct. My comments, I trust, will be relatively succinct, and, uh, but we want to we press on and give attention to every portion of God's word. Verse 1. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, the elders, and to the guardians of the children of Ahab, saying, So now, when this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, as well as the chariots and horses and a fortified city and the weapons, look for the best and fittest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they feared exceedingly greatly and said, Behold, the two kings did not stand before him. How then can we stand? And the one who was over the household and he who was over the city, the elders and the guardians of the children, sent word to Jehu, saying, We are your servants. All that you say to us we will do. We will not make any man king do what is good in your sight." Then he wrote a letter to them a second time, saying, If you are on my side and you will listen to my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me this time tomorrow at Jezreel. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. Now it happened that when the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. Then the messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. So he said, Put them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Now it happened in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are righteous. Behold, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that nothing from the word of Yahweh, which Yahweh spoke concerning the house of Ahab, shall fall to the earth. Indeed, Yahweh has done what he spoke by the hand of his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his acquaintances and his priests until there was no survivor remaining for him. Then he arose and came out and went to Samaria, On the way, while he was at beth Echid of the shepherds, Jehu found the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? And they said, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. Then he said, Take them alive. So they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of beth Echid, 42 men, and he left none of them. Then he went from there and found Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he blessed him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is with your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. And he gave him his hand and he took him up, up to him into the chariot. Then he said, Come with me and see my zeal for Yahweh. So he made him ride in his chariot. 
And he came to Samaria and struck down all who were left to Ahab in Samaria until he had destroyed him according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. So now summon to me all the prophets of Baal, all his slaves and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it in cunning, so that he might cause the slaves of Baal to perish. And Jehu said, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. And they summoned them. Then Jehu sent throughout Israel, and all the slaves of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. Then he said to the one who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the garments for all the slaves of Baal. So he brought out the garments for them. And Jehu came into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the slaves of Baal, Search and see, lest there be here with you any slaves of Yahweh, but only the slaves of Baal. Then they came in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had placed for himself 80 men outside, and he had said, The one who permits any of the men whom I cause to come into your hands to escape shall give up his life in exchange. Now it happened that as soon as he was finished offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the royal officers, Come in, strike them down, let none come out. And they struck them down with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the royal officers threw them out and went to the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the sacred pillars of the house of Baal and burned them. They also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and broke down the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart, even the golden calves that were at Bethel and that were at Dan. And Yahweh said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. In those days, Yahweh began to cut off portions from Israel, and Hazael struck them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan to the east or the sunrise, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, from Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, became king in his place. Now the time which Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pause and pray.
Our Father, we thank you for every part of your word, even the bloody parts. And we pray that tonight, as your Holy Spirit is the ultimate author, we pray that you might use this portion of your word to shape and fashion us and that we may know you and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are brought suddenly in chapter 10 into the midst of the scene, and it's a little difficult for us to remember the context. There's a whole lot of J's at this point, right? Different kings in Israel or in Judah. We have a hard time keeping track of them. But remember, we've, we've looked at this several times, but way back many years earlier in 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah had fled from Jezebel and met God at Horeb or Mount Sinai, that God had told Elijah all those years earlier that he would, in chapter 19, verse 15, he would anoint Hazael, and verse 16, Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint his prophet in your place, And it will be that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Now, way back then, many months ago, we didn't even know who this guy Hazael was. He wasn't introduced to us. God just kind of launches his name into the text from the middle of nowhere. And this Jehu character, whoever he is, no one has a clue. But God saw fit to tell Elijah what was going to happen. And in fact, it was going to happen not through Elijah, and Elijah was going to be taken into heaven, remember, in chariots of fire, but Elisha, who he was to anoint, would be the one that would then tell Hazael that he would be king over Aram, and Hazael would end up being a harassment to Israel as a form of judgment, And it was, remember, last Sunday, we learned that it was a a servant of Elisha who was sent by him to anoint this Jehu character. And Jehu assassinated both Jehoram, king of Israel in the north, a son of Ahab, and this Jehu was a commander of the army of Israel. He also assassinated Ahaziah, who was king of Judah, but Ahaziah had married into the household of Ahab and Jezebel. So they were thick as thieves, you might say. And Ahaziah was not like Jehoshaphat, uh, in in his father, and, and in that line, he was more like Ahab and Jezebel. So God saw fit to use Jehu to take down not one, but two kings in the house of Israel for their association with Ahab and Jezebel. So this is a fulfillment of the word of God. And this is our first point, the first lesson in verses 1 through 17. Jehu, uh, we learn after killing After killing Jehoram and Ahaziah, he next started the process 
of exterminating all of Ahab's house. Now, this is, this is hard for us, and that's understandable. We, we should be horrified by this kind of violence. And yet we need to remember in the context the character of Ahab and Jezebel. Um, these were not nice people. Uh, this was the, they were Hitler-like characters, Mussolini kind of characters, Paul Pot kind of characters. They, these are evil, demonic people who slaughtered untold numbers of Yahweh's prophets and the godly men and women, the few that were left in Israel, were constantly in fear of their lives because of Ahab and Jezebel. And such was the stink of Jezebel and Ahab's sin in the nostrils of God that God had determined that he would not only take out Ahab, not only take out Jezebel, remember in a very unseemly way that she literally became uh, uh, dog dung in the field. God saw fit that he was just going to wipe out the entire line of Ahab and Jezebel. And this is disturbing to us and we tend to think, well, well, what about these children? Well, first of all, we're not necessarily talking about little children. Maybe there were some younger children, but these children of Ahab and Jezebel are, yes, they are caught up in the judgment of God. Now, just step back in a principle. Isn't that a general principle? That's just, that's life under the sun. I mean, we want things to be very, very neat right now. We want, we want those who are bad to get punishment. We want like a laser beam to come down from heaven and zap them, and we want the rest of us to be walking in the sunshine um, and tiptoeing through the tulips. It doesn't work that way. Um, we are, and our children right now, are part of a nation that is so clearly under the judgment of God, Romans 1, and it is just ramping up, and that's just life under the sun. We we and our children live in a world in rebellion against God, and so we ourselves and our children experience something of the judgment of God upon, for example, this nation, this world, even though our children individually may not be contributors to it. So you get the principle? And remember, we have uh, so this isn't necessarily inferring that all of these 70 sons of Ahab are as guilty of sin as he is, but rather that this is God's judgment upon Ahab and Jezebel's household. And do not fear, God is not unjust, and every single one of those individuals in the last day will be raised from the dead and will stand before God to give account for his deeds done in the body, not Ahab or Jezebel's. And I do believe, as a bit of an aside, if we're talking about any young children here, then I believe that they will not be judged because the Bible constantly asserts that men and women in the last day will be judged according to their deeds. In other words, there's an there's a inference of a, a measure of personal accountability. And so that's a sermon for another time. But we do believe that little ones who die... Uh, are uh, taken into God's presence as, a, as an extension of the grace of God through Christ. Um, so we don't need to fear here that God is some kind of ogre, bloodthirsty God. He is not. He is just. He is righteous. And it is a mercy 
that he is taking out the household of Ahab and Jezebel. You don't like to think that way, but that's what God did with the Canaanites. That's partly why God forestalled on the Israelites going from Egypt into the promised land. Why? Because the sins of the Canaanites were not yet fully ripe, per se. But they came to that point. And God knew that if there was not a absolute annihilation, that the sins of the fathers and the idolatries of a sort that are beyond what we can probably want to imagine will continue. So again, God is just. Um, he is not cruel, but he is righteous and fearfully so. So that, that's what's happening. This is a fulfillment. And, and we can't, we want to maybe in, in our initial inclination think, wow, Jehu is just really going over the top. But the text is clear, not only here, but earlier that this is actually the will of the Lord. This is the will of God in judgment upon this household, and God alone has the right to determine that kind of judgment. So Jehu is is carrying out the word and the will of the Lord in these opening verses. And so here's the point, if you would take an outline. Uh, Heads may fall, but not Yahweh's word. Heads may fall, but not Yahweh's word. Uh, Jehu sends to the town of Jezreel, the hometown or hub of where Ahab and Jezebel's sons reside. And they had lots of sons. Ahab had lots of sons, which indicates to us that he was quite immoral. And that was just the way of the kings in those days. Uh, you you had relations with with uh, lots of different women, and you the thought was that you, if you had lots and lots and lots of sons and daughters, and particularly sons, your chances of one of those sons somehow surviving and your line continuing uh, was uh, more likely. The idea was that Ahab and Jezebel were so powerful, and Ahab's house was so. Uh, extensive, and he had so many sons, unlike Henry VIII, that surely the house of Ahab was going to continue on for many generations to come. Well, God had a different idea in mind. And so uh, Ahab, and Jez- Ahab and Jezebel are out of the picture. Um, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, is out of the picture. And now Jehu sends to the city where most of Ahab and Jezebel's sons are, and basically in verses 1 through 5, he gives them an option. He says, okay, you have the sons of uh, descendants of Ahab among you, sons of uh, Jehoram. I tell you what, how about you guys pick one of those sons of Ahab, and you pick the best one, and you make him your king, and you give him an army, and I'll meet you in battle. Um, it's quite a bold stand, and but they conclude, verse 4, uh, whoa, whoa. Uh, Jehu, was, this man, was able to take out not only the king of Israel, Jehoram, but he was able to take out also the king of Judah in a span of a short time. So if he was able to take out both kings, not just one, how could we possibly stand, verse 4? How then can we stand? So they capitulate, they 
send word, they bow to Jehu, they essentially recognize him as king, and he asks for their heads in baskets. And again, this is a horrifying, uh, and rightly so, uh, there's a little bit of, we need to, you know, historically, uh, in that ancient world at that time, that would not have been, unfortunately, an uncommon practice. Uh, the idea would be you would show what happens to your enemies, and um, so it's very unseemly, and heads do fall, a lot of them in these verses. But I want you to focus on verse 10. In the middle of all this bloodshed, heads rolling, heads falling, notice that the text says, and Jehoram says, or rather Jehu says, Know then that nothing from the word of Yahweh, which Yahweh spoke concerning the house of Ahab, shall fall to the earth. Now, that is a key phrase, and that is one of my most beloved phrases in the Old Testament. That's what we're told at the end of Joshua, that not one word that God had declared fell to the ground. Now, think about it. In the context, up in verse 4, the the men in that town of Jezreel, these powerful, wealthy men, they say, how can we stand? In other words, if we go against Jehu, we're going to fall. And heads have been falling. But Jehu declares, the word of Yahweh, once declared, never falls to the ground. It's a beautiful picture of, of the vitality and the absolute strength and invincibility of the word of God. Uh, Chris and I went on a brief walk this afternoon and uh, very nice and relatively warm and and uh, she noted that this is the time of year when God does some pruning on the trees with the heavy snow and the winds and pretty much any dead branches or dead trees are coming down and we understand that branches and limbs that fall down they were weak to start with they they came down because they were diseased, they were weak, they were in a poor position on the tree, whatever the case may be. The falling to the ground is a sign of death, of weakness, of disease. And God's word never, ever, ever falls or stumbles to the ground. It's a, it's a beautiful phrase and one you should remember. And is a theme all the way from Moses through Joshua, all the way through Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. This is a major theme and storyline that the words and will of men, sinful men, will fall, but not the word of Yahweh. And that's in the context of, you would have thought that Jezebel and Ahab There's no way they could fall. They were way too powerful. Their grip on northern Israel was too strong. Remember, God said, I'll preserve 7,000 who don't bow the knee to Baal. Only 7,000. I mean, I don't know how large the population was, but it it was surely in the hundreds of thousands. And God said to Elijah at Mount Horeb, I'll preserve 7,000 who don't bow the knee. In other words, a small, tiny remnant. Their their hold on Israel seems so strong. But when God determined to... Thank you. Thank you, I'll take it. When God determined for his word 
determine his word, it would not fail. So heads may fall, but not Yahweh's word. Secondly, in verses 18 through 27, I, 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 never mind, I, I, sorry, hold that, pause. Not never mind, that was the wrong word, pause. Back up a little bit. I know there's a little maybe confusion about verses 15 to 17. Who is this uh, Jehonadab character? Uh, we don't know. He kind of comes into the text from nowhere. He is apparently a, a follower of the Lord, a, a man who's known to be true to the Yahweh. And Jehu sees this, knows this. He knows that this Jehonadab character is rare in that he is a leader who is for Yahweh and for Yahweh's cause. And so Jehu wants him to see his zeal for the Lord, verse 16, his zeal for Yahweh. And so Jehonadab goes along with him and is an eyewitness to what Jehu is about to carry out. So then secondly tonight in verses 18 through 27, we see that Baal's worship may go down the drain, but not Yahweh's. Baal's worship goes down the drain, but not Yahweh's, not the Lord's. Jehu is is, is working on cleaning house, literally the house of Ahab and Jezebel out. He's taken out Jezebel. He's taken out Ahab and Jezebel's sons. Now he wants to take out Ahab and Jezebel's favorite god in worship. Baal. And Baal was the dominant religion of the time. It was absolutely the most popular. It was uh, where the churches were the biggest. The, the preachers were the most popular. The worship was most enjoyable and relevant uh, to people. They just really got a pick-me-up when they went to a Baal or Asherah service. But it was corrupt. It was wretched. It was idolatrous and God despised the worship of Baal. And it's a stubborn thing because remember that uh, God had used Elijah at Mount Carmel to slay hundreds of Baal priests and Asherah priestesses. And in spite of that time in that previous generation, here we are, And Baal worship is still very popular. It is hard to root out. And it would seem that it's going to dominate. And if people were writing articles, they were writing articles about the disappearance of not Christianity, but Yahwehism in Israel. And how was the church in Israel going to survive? And maybe some were writing articles in the Israel Today about uh, how to make Yahweh worship more relevant. And maybe they were thinking, if only we you know, combine a little bit of Baal and Yahweh, we'll, we'll have, see better numbers. But whatever the case may be, um, Jehu understood that God hated the worship of Baal. Uh, it, it was idolatry. And God was adamantly opposed. And so he comes up with a scheme to once and for all, and stamp out the religion of Baal. So he, this is, this is before the days of email, before the days of phone, text. I mean, you think, how can this happen? How can he be, you know, killing 
Jehoram and Ahaziah and the sons, and, and at the same time, these people are clueless. And um, so this is, this is happening in a short amount of time. You don't have uh, the kind of communication that we have today. So he sends out word, and he comes up with this scheme to collect all the prophets of Baal. Verse 19, summon to me all the prophets of Baal and all his slaves and all his priests. Let none of them be missing. And, and people are picking up that uh, Jehu tends to uh, be rather thorough if you don't follow his commands. So they show up, and um, he takes care to see that when they're putting on their outfits and their garments, you know, for the Baal worship service. Um, he says, verse 23, search and see, lest there be here any slaves of Yahweh. Um, he's, he's faking that he is uh, a Baal zealot, that he is for the worship of Baal. He's, he's, indicating that Baal worship, just like with Ahab and Jezebel, is going to be the state religion. And people are taking their cue from him. And so they want to make sure that there's no servants of Yahweh, the God of Israel, there. He's, in a way, he's protecting um, the servants of Yahweh, but he's also indicating that he's lying, but he's deceiving them that he is for Baal. But this is his ploy to take out Baal worship. Um, and you see the story. I don't need to tell you in detail. They're, they're successful. They gather the crowd. He puts men around the outside. Then they take out everybody inside. And verse 27, the result is that the various elements of the house of Baal are broken down, burned. And that place that was the most revered place of worship in Ahab and Jezebel's day became a latrine. It's a reminder to us to not be overly impressed. This is a hard lesson. To not be overly impressed with the popular sentiment of the day. The juggernaut right now of LGBTQ on and on. If you even hint that maybe lesbianism or homosexuality is not right. Oh, we feel that. I mean, we're not trying to be mean to anybody. We're just trying to live out our lives unto the God. It, but in this culture, even to believe what the Bible says, and right now it just seems like unstoppable. It's it has the grip of our entire government, has the grip of our entire entertainment industry, our school system, our towns. It, it's just seem, would seem unstoppable. And we need to remember not to be overly impressed. God can change that very quickly, and Christ will when he returns. So Baal worship and every other false form of worship will go down the drain. And, and make no mistake, that LGBTQ plus on and on is a religion. It's a religion of self. I can make myself into whatever I want to be. I can love somebody or conduct myself physically with anyone 
in any way I want. It is at its root a defiance of God. It's an absolute defiance of God made me, male or female. God made men and women to enter into the covenant of marriage. It's just a wholesale defiance of God in his way. And there's, there's no boundaries to it. That's why you see the unraveling of the, uh, of the transgender movement in this sense. They, they begin to see how it is undoing all the rights that have been gained for women in sports and so forth. And, and they don't know what to do. And the reason that they won't, in that movement, stand up and set any boundaries is because at its root, it's a, it's a movement that does not construct. It destructs. It destructs, deconstructs what God has ordained. And right now, it just seems like it is insurmountable. And that is a form of worship. It's a, it's a religious system with a religious kind of devotion. I just share that as an example of in their day, Baal worship would have felt like that. You would have gone everywhere and there would have been Baal flags flying on the sign of the store and your relatives would have been worshiping Baal or Asherah. And if you worshiped Yahweh, it would have been awkward and uncomfortable. And how do you work this out? And parents were concerned about their children and, and it just seemed insurmountable. And here we have a reminder tonight that God can flip the tables very, very quickly if he wants to. Baal worship will go down the drain along literally into the latrine with every other form of false worship, but not Yahweh's, not the Lord's worship. It will remain forever. Finally tonight, in verses 28 through 36, zeal is good, but not mixed with compromise. Zeal is good, but not mixed with compromise. So Jehu destroyed, verse 28, Baal out of Israel. He was successful, and this was the will of God. Um, in Second Chronicles chapter 22, verse 7, we're told, we're reminded that Jehu was actually anointed by God. Remember, Elisha sent a servant and he anointed Jehu? And the text says that Yahweh, that Jehu was anointed of Yahweh for this purpose, to take out the house of Ahab and Jezebel. He was zealous. He had said to Jehonadab, come see my zeal, verse 16, for Yahweh. And he was recognized by God in verse 30, because you've done well in doing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So God recognized that Jehu had in fact carried out God's judgment upon Ahab and Jezebel and the worship of Baal. And because of that, he would have a line. However, verse 31, but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with all his heart. And the biggest compromise was that he did not confront, after he confronted Baal worship, he did not confront the idolatrous, blasphemous worship in Israel, including the uh, golden calves that were set up at Dan and Bethel, verse 29. 
God had said as part of his law, you shall not make any graven images. And Israel in the north, their worship of Yahweh, the general populace, uh, populace, if they worshiped Yahweh, in addition to Baal, they went to either Dan or Bethel and sacrificed to a golden cow in the name of Yahweh. And Jehu carried out God's judgment upon Ahab and Jezebel, but he did not walk in the law of Yahweh. His zeal was mixed with compromise. And therefore, he and Israel, the north, continued to be under God's judgment. Do you see verse 32? Yahweh began to cut off portions from Israel. And Hazael, that God had raised up in Aram, was part of that judgment upon Israel in the north. And God began to just cut away here and cut away here from the land that he had given to his people. Think about how significant that is. And again, we're learning how is it eventually that the Assyrians would come and finally wipe out and haul off Israel, the ten tribes in the north. And it is because of their idolatry and their blasphemous worship. Zeal is good, but not mixed with compromise. This is, again, in our Sunday school class this morning. We were learning about uh, Reformation and a bit of the Puritans in England. And this was their heart. Um, was not to arrive at a compromise, which they saw the Church of England arriving at but to push all the way through as best they knew to see that worship in local churches was conducted solely according to the word of God and not man-made tradition. And that is why, by and large, we are grateful for that Puritan movement, not without flaws, but their zeal was a good zeal. But where there was compromise, and this is so tempting so tempting in a local church, so tempting at different times. Jehu doubtless thought, well, if, if I attack the golden calves, that's just going too far. He took his cue from what seemed reasonable or how people might be affected rather than the law of God, the word of God. It's a reminder for us to be cautious when we say we believe in the authority of the scriptures alone. Because there's going to come a time, do you really mean that? And it's not going to be easy. It's going to cost. It's good to have zeal. But better than zeal is obedience and submission to the authority of the word of God under any circumstances, whatever the results, wherever the chips may fall. Sobering chapter, but encouraging to be remembered, to remember that God's word will not fall. His worship will never be destroyed. And a good call for us tonight, as we look at our own lives, as we conduct our church life, that we do not mix zeal with compromise. May God help us not to. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this portion of your word. It's heavy, bloody. We fear you for your judgment, but we thank you that you do not stand by forever and let evil and wickedness go unchecked. We thank you that you brought the reign of Ahab and Jezebel and the tyranny of Baal worship to an end in Israel. We grieve that there continue to be compromise, and to that end, we pray for ourselves. We pray for our neighbors around us who are caught up in false religions of this world. We pray that they would escape the judgment that's coming. And we pray for ourselves that we would not be like Jehu, have a form of zeal, but compromising. We pray that we would walk before you according to your word in integrity and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.